There is a, a story uh, in the text, in the Buddhist uh, tradition, a story of uh, the time of the Buddha that I, uh, I really like and I of, often bring with me on retreats. And I don't know if you've ever heard the story of um, uh, Rohitasa uh, meeting the Buddha. Have you heard this story before? Maybe yes, maybe no. No, <laughs> it's a good one. You should have been there. <laughs> um, so, um, Rohitasa is a young person, um, and I've heard the story the first time a couple of de- decades ago. And uh, from the first time I heard the story, and um, I always imagined, like, I have a visual of uh, Rohitasa. So it's a young person, uh, very bright, with a lot of energy, you know, like very, very alive, um, uh, brilliant, I would uh, think, gutsy. Um, and uh, I always imagine uh, uh, Rohitasa as a non binary, uh, uh, you know, gender queer. Um, uh, yeah, images that comes to mind are maybe uh, Puck in um, Shakespeare's uh, Is It the Tempest? Uh, there's this very clever character, um, um, mischievous a little bit, and um, very intelligent and quick. And so uh, one evening, uh, um, Rohitasa, I think, is told uh, when one evening, maybe an evening like tonight, you know, Rohitasa is told that there is in the surroundings uh, a very, very wise being, maybe one of the most wise beings to ever lived on earth, you know, and that um, Rohitasa uh, could meet with this being, this being being the Buddha. And so Rohitasa has the chance to sit down for a few minutes with the Buddha. Just this is very juicy, I think. Like if I imagine, you know, if you imagine for yourself, you know, like if somebody was to say, hey, you know, if you want, take 15, 20 minutes and you can actually come and talk with the Buddha, you know. Uh, what would be uh, the question you would ask if you could ask a question? It's an interesting thing, huh? If you could ask, like, one question. Like, oh, there's many people who want to talk to him, but come, come, by the fire, and maybe you can ask one question. Ah, I want the right question. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, um, Rohitasa uh, sits down with the Buddha. Uh, let's imagine a fire like tonight. And, uh, and asks, so the question coming from Rohitasa is very surprising. Not the question I would have asked. But Rohitasa asks, um, is it possible by walking to reach the end of the world? That's Rohitasa's question. It's a kind of a few... Um, you know, adapt it, translate it locally in terms of this retreat. It's like, how can I get out of here? 
so can I, by walking, get out of here, reach the end of the world? And the Buddha's reply is uh, very direct, very simple. The Buddha says, No, Rohitasa, it's not possible by walking to reach the end of the world. And Rohitasa gets really excited by the answer. They say, oh my God, I can't believe I ask you this, to me, very deep question, you know, unresolvable. Can I get out of here? <laughs> you know, by walking, can I reach the end of the world? And very simply, you say to me, no, Rohitasa, it's not possible by walking to reach the end of the world. I'm amazed because I've tried you know, I've tried by walking and walking and walking, and I'm a good walker, <laughs> you know. And I never stopped and walked and walked, and I never reached the end of the world. Well, when I say I never stopped, I actually did. Rohitasa, you know, maybe when you're in front of the Buddha, you feel like he can see everything. <laughs> so you may as well disclose the total truth of what's happening, you know. So Rohitasa says, actually, I did stop. I did stop to pee and to defecate and to rest a little bit and to eat a little bit. But most of the time I was walking and I really walked, you know. And, um, but, but I didn't reach the end of the world. And the Buddha, you know, there's maybe a little silence, pregnant with, you know, wisdom. <laughs> And the Buddha adds, um, I say, Rohitasa, it's not possible by walking to reach the end of the world. But, and that's where I have to remember the story. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> that's always where my memory goes. <laughs> um, it's not possible by walking to reach the end of the world. But to reach the end of suffering, uh, one has to reach the end of the world. The world, Roitasa, the end of the world, the beginning of the world, and the way to the end of the world is in here, in this fathom long body, in this body long like this, with its thoughts, perceptions, uh, the world, the creation of the world, the end of the world, and the path to the end of the world is here, in this body and mind. Bang. You know, probably set Rohitasa on their path to awakening, I would think. And so to me, this is an absolutely powerful teaching. That's, to me, that's a core teaching. That's the most striking, uh, kind of shaking. And that's what we're doing here. So we sit here and we start to notice how the world is created. And so we begin to see maybe thoughts and emotion and how they create a certain world. What we pay attention to creates a certain world. We can't be aware of everything. So if we are aware of only this, 
then this is the world we live in. And so, if I sit sit here um, in obsession about something, obsessing about something, that becomes my world. It's the world I live in. And not only this, but it's also the world I'm conditioning myself to live in. That's maybe what uh, neuroscience is telling us these days, with neuroplasticity saying, whatever you're doing, you're actually training. So be careful. If you're training being absent-minded, caught in your thoughts, that is the world you're creating and the world you're going to inhabit. And so what do we do? We come here and we start maybe noticing what kind of world the mind is creating for us, you know? One of us maybe lives in a world, a created world of comparing. Comparing myself to my better self, comparing myself to the last self of the last retreat, comparing myself to the one next to me that seems totally enlightened, that's my projections, you know? And maybe I live in a world of comparing, comparing, and I live in this limited, oppressive world that compares. Or maybe I'm stuck in a planning world where we can only plan. The only thing you can do in that world (laughs) is to plan. (laughs) And the more you're in it, the more you're conditioning yourself to be in it, or I'm conditioning myself to be in it. And here, maybe we suggest paying attention, and so we nurture the contact with reality. And we say, oh, maybe if we can do this in a friendly way, in a non-demanding way, in a non-judging way, And then we start slowly to inhabit that world that is not uh, pushing away things, that is, uh, uh, you know, cultivating curiosity towards uh, phenomena, things as they are happening. And suddenly we start to live in that world where things happening are interesting. And slowly they're more and more interesting than what could happen or should have happened. We lose interest in the practice for what could happen or could have happened or will it happen. And and more and more we live in a world where what is happening is worthy of care, of interest. And that is known to be very liberating, but we have to check it out for ourselves. And so what we're noticing here may be uh, a lot is that we're caught in created worlds. Maybe we haven't noticed yet. (laughs) But, um, you know, we've been conditioned to have certain reactions to what's happening. Maybe one conditioned, trained reaction is to want something else. Give me something, and I'll want something else. A little more, something a little different. (laughs) And so, you see how our world is created? That's the Buddha saying this. Hey, Rohitasa, the world, the creation of the world, the end of the world happens here. By the way, the word world in Buddhist uh, 
stories often could be easily replaced and is replaceable by the word suffering. Hey, Ruitasa, the birth of suffering, suffering, the end of suffering, the path to the end of suffering is happening in here, within this body, with its thoughts and perceptions. And so we sit here and we notice how the mind creates the uh, world. So we don't, we're not guilty about all the bad news we find, you know. We just, uh, we're becoming conscious. We're not uh, blaming ourselves. There's no reason f- for it. It's only natural society we live in, etc. Sent us many messages. And so here we're detoxifying the field a bit. Huh? And it's a long, slow painful <laughs> process. <laughs> and at some point we start to kind of, I don't know if I could say love it. That's what I was uh, hearing in one of the groups today of the people with maybe more experience were saying like, oh, it's not easy being here, but, you know, I see the value. I know why I'm here, you know. I actually like doing this work. It's not easy. I remember going to retreats and there was one uh, center in particular in California, Spirit Rock, where I would go sometimes for a week, sometimes for a month, sometimes for two months, and there was always the same questions. One of the er uh, first questions was, what's your intention by coming? Why do you come here? (laughs) And I always had an idea, and during the course of the thing, (laughs) sometimes I was like, why? Why?" (laughs) But uh, often I would answer, because I can't, you know, pay somebody to do the work for me, you know, like this. There's no way out. I, I figured out that only this being can do the work for this being, you know. And so that's why I come here, because, you know, the work has to be done. It's a very slow kind of deconstruction of misunderstanding, you know. And it has to be done, so I'm putting in my time, you know, for my own benefit, and for the benefit of uh, those around me, so those close to me, so that I create a little bit less damage around me, you know, and those even far away from me, that I maybe learn to live as a citizen of this planet in a more conscious, sensitive uh, way. And so here we see these conditionings uh, appear, all these ways that we've, b- our minds have been trained in these beliefs and these ways of uh, relating to what's happening. And they, they keep popping up. And uh, one image that I keep talking about, Anushka, she's a regular, um, uh, uh, she's a friend that I regularly uh, have the chance to teach with. And uh, at one of the LGBTQ retreats uh, in, in Boston, she was just, uh, when the retreat started, she was just coming back from uh, the Amsterdam uh, uh, Gay Pride. And so she used an image that uh, I thought was hilarious and so uh, describing so well our minds. She was describing, I've never seen it, so some of you probably know it, but... Um, and you can tell me if it really did happen. <laughs> but Anushka is saying, like, uh, so, you know, what in, the, in American English we called floats, you know, like uh, 
you know, the usually it's on a truck, you know, where they put like, you know, the, you know, people and costumes and you know, so there's a float. And she was saying that in Amsterdam, it's actually real float. They're really floating on the canal, and uh, it's inflated things. You know, uh, is that true? And inflated is like uh, with air, like things that come like a big. You know, I don't know. Like imagine a big, uh, um, uh, big palm tree. You know, like this. But when the float goes under a bridge, you know, the 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 palm tree has to collapse. You know, it collapses and then it goes under the bridge and then whoops, it comes back up like this. You know, and so the 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 things keeps collapsing and coming back and collapsing and and coming back and people are like, why? And I don't know. Here, a castle uh, appears and whoops, deflates. You know, to go under the bridge. And she was saying, "Oh my God, this is exactly like our minds." <laughs> Amsterdam Gay Pride is really a good representation of our minds, you know. And so we have these tendencies of the mind. They're asleep. They're deflated, you know. And suddenly something happens, you cross a bridge, <laughs> and suddenly, whoa, big reaction of fear, you know, uh, uh, what is it called, S- uh, self-righteousness, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad, you know, and appears like this, and it's really felt like this, and then it deflates after a few minutes of walking, suddenly, <laughs> you know. And it just, you know, suddenly a big opinion. I wouldn't do this like this. This is how I would do this. And then, (laughs) you know, it feels so real when it's there. It takes so much space in our mind and heart and even in our bodies, you know. And then it just passes, you know. I don't know, you're sitting here, can't wait for the bell, ring the bell, you know. And it's like a big inflated thing. Ring the bell, (laughs) ring the bell. And then, you know, like, 20 minutes later, you're walking outside, this ring-the-bell thing is non-existent. You know, it's empty at the core. And this uh, image is really strong because there's nothing at the core. I'm sure if the Buddha had had the chance to be at the Amsterdam Gay Pride, (laughs) that would be one of his classic images he would uh, (laughs) use everywhere. You know that he used the image often of the bubble, huh? talking about these conditioning, these formations in our <laughs> mind, these emotions, thoughts, perception, the way we perceive things as uh, empty bubbles. He used also the image of the banana tree trunk, as many of you maybe know. Huh? And he said, why? Because he said, if you're looking for hard wood, you want like really strong wood, you go in the woods, let's go in the woods and find some hard wood to build uh, something, a shelter, something. And you get into the woods, like a woods around here, and you find a banana tree, like there are many of these around here, (laughs) you know, with big leaves and big flowers and big fruits, you know, of course you'll think that's going to be hard wood, you know. You cut this down only to find that there's no hard wood in a banana tree. It's empty at the core. It's very impressive like this, like of an Amsterdam gay pride float. Very impressive, but empty at the core. How amazing is that? So here, 
we have the chance. It, it's even bring almost uh, tears to my eyes to think that we have the chance here to actually see reality for what it is instead of being blinded, if I can use that, uh, or tricked, if I can use that image, all the time by our thoughts, emotions, taking them so seriously and identifying with them and being caught in them. And here, starting to notice, and it takes time, you know, a few days, notice, oh, I see you appear and disappear, <laughs> you know? You know? And starting to see, actually, oh, maybe I don't need to take this that seriously. Maybe I don't need to debate for hours with this impression that I'm unworthy, you know? Maybe I can let the impression do its inflated thing, you know, and collapse naturally when suddenly the soup will be served, <laughs> you know, and the soup will be more interesting than the self-loathing, <laughs> you know. And so, and, and we gain in this way some freedom, some uh, pliability of mind, flexibility of mind. We can allow the heart, mind, psyche, inner field to be visited with something that seems terrifying, you know, like the Wizard of Oz. You know, oh, the Wizard of Oz. And uh, a little bit like uh, Dorothy. I don't know how this works in Europe when you present these images from this American movie. <laughs> so Dorothy, huh? she goes on the quest, you know. She goes on the path like we are. We're all little Dorothys. Is that, that's camp enough as an image? <laughs> I think that's an official LGBTQ image. Dorothy traveling on the path. <laughs> Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. And uh, who is she traveling with? She's traveling with... Maybe help me here. I know there's a lion. There's a fearful lion. Not the best. <laughs> you know, you would like to travel with a courageous lion. No. You actually get the fearful lion. <laughs> it really looks, it feels like our own experience. You know, I'm going to sit here and courageously sit this retreat and no, I want to go back home now. I just wanted to sign up. I didn't want to do the whole thing. <laughs> I just wanted to tell my friends I did. <laughs> I don't actually want to do it. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. And uh, who does Dorothy travel with? Does tin, tin, so what about the Tin Man? There's something wrong he about... He wants a heart. Huh? He wants a heart. He wants a heart. Oh. Isn't that like, like us, no? We feel disconnected, you know? We want to feel things, but we feel fragmented. We feel, you know, like what's the story where I think maybe there's a book that starts with uh, Mr. So-and-so lived a few feet away from his body, you know? And that's us sometimes, you know? Like, oh, I have a life, but it's not here, you know? There's another life that is mine somewhere, you know. It's not this one. <laughs> and so Dorothy travels like this, you know, towards the big, the fearful. And what does she find? Nothing behind the image. Wow, what a trip. <laughs> and so here we have the chance to do that, uh, you know, archetypal Dorothy journey. 
of finding out that what is the most scary maybe is not that scary. It just looks scary. But it's not easy and we have to find this for ourselves. Maybe I could read to you, don't freak out, I have a phone in my hands. Everything will be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Too much laughter on this retreat, that's not good. This practice is serious. I'm going to get in trouble by the big Dharma people. They're going to come down, hey, we need to talk to you. Too much fun. (laughs) So, Sleepwalking Within a Dream by Gavin Harrison, as promised. Yeah. Yeah? So, Gavin says here, What if you could no longer see the sky and the sun, the rain or the rainbows? What if the moon, the stars and the shadows of night were lost on you forever? No doubt, a great sadness would befall your beautiful heart. For until the eyes, within the eyes, can see again, the great owls of night are gone, as the dragonflies and the butterflies of your days. See the world again like a child. Let's take this as instructions. See the world once again like a child, innocent, naked, honest, simple, unscripted by thought. For when a label, which is a thought, is placed upon anything, there is overshadowing and loss. All we see is the thought we perceive through a filter of our thinking the original thing lost to us perhaps for he- forever transwalkers sleepwalking within a dream of our creation the clouds breezes and birds disappeared heartbreaking isn't it until we are willing to travel deeper than fixation upon thought, we miss the simple naked glory of creation as it is, as it is, as it is right now. Are you willing to abandon your love affair with the language of your mind and get real? Are you satisfied, slumbering, through life, in love with your thinking? And is that the love affair you really want? The choice is yours. No matter how glorious, burnished, spiritual or eloquent, thoughts are always a deflection from the truth. But please, don't believe me. You may not want to believe what you're thinking right now, either. Find out for yourself. Stop. Instructions. Stop. Look. Witness. Observe. Inquire. All those thoughts of you 
no more who you are than the passing of clouds, the waving of grasses, or the falling of nuts. Your views and opinions about the Milky Way, not the Milky Way. There is no Milky Way. Crazy, isn't it? We are inmates within an insane asylum. Thinking is not the problem. Allow thoughts to come and go. Don't root within them. Don't believe them either. They're not who you are. Move deeper. Rest in that of you which is larger than any thought could ever be. Hark! The orchestra is playing your song. The dance floor awaits you. Don't hesitate. Don't think about it. Just dance, dance, dance all the way home. Would you agree it's not so far from Roitasa's story? You know? I'd, as I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, very close to Roitasa, like the world is created in here. You know? And deflated, it talks about deflated as if Gavin had been to Amsterdam Gay <laughs> Pride. <laughs> And this invitation to move deeper, move deeper than assumptions, move deeper than, than what um, you know, has been learned, what has been uh, suggested, move deeper to what um, first uh, appears to see if there is something uh, else, some, something else will be revealed deeper. That's an interesting uh, uh, way to talk about this, and I'm reminded as I'm uh, reading this about the move deeper. So in the anthology that I was talking about uh, last night, anthology of um, um, uh, essays from uh, trans, non-gendered folks, non-conforming, gender non-conforming folks and uh, gender queer folks, I remember one one, uh, essay where a person who's been practicing for many years um, and I, I can't tell you why, because I have to reread the stories and learn about these um, these authors and who they are, each one of them. Um, now I, I remember my reading as a big few hundred page of uh, uh, important information for me. But uh, one of the uh, authors talks about um, years of practice. As I, I'll, I'll tell the story as I remember it years of practice of um, you know thinking that they needed to uh, accept their body as it was you know accept that they were uh, uh, that they uh, you know uh, you know accept the, the gender that they were given given at birth uh, by the doctor like hey it's a boy hey it's a girl you know, they thought that uh, wise Buddhist practice would be to uh, accept this as it was. And they describe really well in this text that it took a number of years to actually see, move a little deeper than this idea and recognize uh, that a deeper acceptance was the acceptance that there was changes that needed to be made to this body. 
in order to live freely, to live accordingly to what was uh, felt inside. And I thought this was uh, remarkable. It needs, I think, a lot of independence, a lot of clear seeing to come to such a conclusion with um, maybe the pressure that can come from a dominant culture or the pressure that could come even from a Buddhist environment uh, to actually uh, look so deeply inside oneself that one would be able to see clearly what is the appropriate response underneath uh, the preconceived idea. And I think this might be good for all of us uh, of this uh, LGBTQI uh, community here. Um, that's something that I've uh, really appreciated about this practice, is although the world might be saying to me something that I should be or what I should not be or what is okay, what is not okay, what is sinful and what is not. Uh, my understanding of the Buddhist teachings is that the Buddha came along and said, hey, I'm going to show you a technique, an approach, a practice, so that you can see for yourself what is right and what is not what is true and what is not, what is beneficial, what is healthy and what is not. You'll be able maybe to hear what is suggested by others, but see for yourself. And so I see this as a gift, an amazing gift of independence. Pay attention, and we'll need to pay a lot of attention because we've been constructed with a lot of messages that we're not enough, that this, that that. You know? And so to actually discover, make conscious all these layers, you know, and release them, you know, or actually remove the power <coughs> that we've given to these, uh, these perceptions or beliefs, you know, it will take a lot of attention. And to me, the practice that we're doing here is a big, major spring cleanup, let's call it like this. And it's uh, layer by layer, it takes time. I remember one time, uh, it's a very small thing that comes to mind, an example, but I tried to bring example to, 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 for us to understand uh, in a different way, to, you know, to lived experience what I mean. So the example that comes to mind is uh, I'm on retreat after a few days of retreat, very quiet, more quiet than at the beginning for sure, <laughs> the retreat. And I'm in line for food and I pour the soup and I pour the this and the that. And at the very end of the table, there's uh, little buckets like this with uh, utensils. And uh, we d just see the... Um, handle of the spoons. We don't see the actual spoon itself. So, really slowly, mindful, you know, putting soup, mindful, putting out the, the spoon. And as the spoon comes out, it's a big serving spoon. And so, I take the spoon out and immediately, shame, you greedy you with your huge spoon, <laughs> you know? 
And so what was revealed to me was a conditioning. Huh? Because I didn't want the big spoon, I just wanted the regular spoon. What came out was a very big spoon <laughs> to serve, you know, some, something salad or something. And, uh, and my conditioning, dormant conditioning, that I'm bad, you know, was just waiting for the next opportunity to show up. And it has no pride, a big spoon would do, you know. And so as I took this and I saw suddenly like the shame, I'm a greedy, I'm bad, you know, I take too much space, or whatever came like washed through like in a very physical way, you know, suddenly I was like, oh my God, I've been seen with the big spoon, you know. And so suddenly I saw, I was able to see, oh, this is made up. This is an inflation. This is a mistaken view, you know. There was no intention. But that is always waiting for the occasion to, to come out. And we come on retreat and we slow down and we pay attention as we put on shoes, open doors, so that these little monsters, you know, will come in the light of our awareness. Because they do really well on acknowledge, unconscious. They can lead the whole life. They can lead speech, action, choices, you know. And they can be very oppressive for a long time. So we come here these things to be revealed so that we can change the relationship instead of having the little thing on the shoulder saying like hey go this way you know escape or you're bad or and just follow you know we starting to do like hey what are you little appearing mistaken view <laughs> you know and so that's what um, that's what we do here I think it's um uh, can be very liberating. Because also we're in the Netherlands. Uh, I remember last year, I think it's uh, about a year ago, I was at... Uh, another retreat center uh, in Boston, the Insight Meditation Society, where I mostly practice, teach a lot. Um, and I was talking to an acquaintance, good friend there, who works in the, was one of the cooks in the, um, in the center. Um, and he was saying, uh, Marlon uh, Barrios Solano, he also teaches uh, meditation. Uh, he's, he, multiple personalities. <laughs> he's, a, he's a cook. He's a, uh, teaches mindfulness and dharma, and he's also a, a scholar in um, contemporary dance. He's a you know university professor. I think it was for many years in Berlin, uh, teaching, and uh, so he, he knows about you know he thoughts about dan dancing in uh, contemporary dance, modern dance. And uh, he was telling me that uh, he was here in the Netherlands uh, last year. Here, as you know, no? I from Quebec, that's one thing I've always known about uh, the Netherlands. 
It's one of the heaven of uh, modern dance. Are you aware of this? You know, Belgium, in my mind, Belgium, Netherlands, doesn't get better in terms of uh, contemporary dance companies and all this. Uh, and so he was here uh, in a conference of, uh, taking on uh, dance workshops with masters of different, uh, you know, uh, genre, genre of dance and stuff. And he was saying that he found himself uh, in a voguing um, workshop. So artists of many different uh, discipline or yeah, styles of dance sharing their deep knowledge of their own uh, you know, school or approach. And so he was in a voguing uh, workshop with a voguing master, we, we would think, artist. And uh, he, he was telling me that he got uh, a really, really powerful, um, beautiful, queer uh, transmission of the Dharma in the voguing workshop. Because uh, the uh, artist or leader of the workshop was inviting people to, to vogue and be fabulous, you know. And at some point said something like... Um, you know, it's all made up. It's all inflations. It's all empty. It's all made up. So you can be absolutely fabulous. You can be fantastic because your regular old boring personality is also made up. <laughs> it's all made up. <laughs> it's all conditioned, conditional, uh, you know. And there can be... Uh, you know, play with this, and there we're not bond, bond to, uh, or maybe we are for a little while until we find out to free ourselves from bondage in this way. And so, uh, and so here we come and we notice this that, um, you know, there can be a different relationship with um, um, discouragement, that uh, discouragement can come up. And, yeah, we can follow it. We can dance that dance, that style, you know. Or we could just notice its appearing nature and disappearing nature, become interested, curious. Oh, what is discouragement, this, this dejection? What is, how does that feel? And here, instead of following uh, that choreography, maybe waking up to it and becoming interested in what is cultivated at that moment, not discouragement. What is, this, is cultivated at that moment is care, honesty, curiosity, uh, energy, stability of mind, the capacity to not be rocked and uh, led, moved by all the different emotions, the capacity to be uh, you know, visited uh, and uh, maybe uh, remain somewhat free, although touched, you know, by the different mind states and thoughts that uh, come by.
And so we were in a group this morning naming the kind of um, typical dance styles in a retreat on the first couple of days. The way that our mind uh, moves, <laughs> let's call them dance style, uh, of the ter- first two days. And often, and I'll name them again for all of us to maybe become aware of. So one of the dance style of our minds is um, doubt. What am I doing here? Why am I here? Why did I register for this? Uh, and this is a very oppressive mind state. We can totally uh, be fooled by it. It's a very powerful mind state, so it would be very natural that we would be fooled by it. Uh, yet, it is possible to actually recognize it as present and be tender with it. Oh, when a human being is visited by that kind of energy, it's very disempowering. It's very confusing. It's very difficult to be with this. And in that moment again, instead of producing more thoughts uh, related to doubt, which is not onward leading, uh, at least that's how it's presented in the teaching, you have to check it out for yourself. It's presented as entangling, as a, you know, disempowering, as oppressive, as a bondage. And so when it comes, it's not that it shouldn't come. When it comes is to actually recognize it's there and become very tender maybe, very caring and very attentive to not be fooled. And in these moments of uh, being awake, we're actually uh, learning to have power when visited by strong, debilitating doubt. And, uh, And gain a lot of freedom and you know, later in our lives, because these also happen in our city or country life, when they come, we'll be able to, oh, there's a lot of doubt or confusion. You know, I'll be able to actually be confused for a little while without losing ground. Oh, I'm actually confused or ambiguous. I do not know what to do, what to say. Startled or, you know. I don't know what are the other kind of manifestations of that, but I'll be able to stay maybe quiet and resourced. Do you get the meaning of that word here, resourced? means I can uh, remain calm, I can remain uh, maybe kind, I can remain maybe partly creative or maybe not lose my sense of humor, although visited by confusion. Maybe I'll be able to say, oh, actually I'm very confused right now but not collapse in the confusion. In the texts, uh, the way it's presented is um, when these emotions uh, come by, the Buddha, an awakened being, seeing the potential for this to arise, you know, it says, oh, I see you, Mara. Mara being the personification of the afflictive mind state, despair and all this and when it comes like it's just there's some havoc I can create around here you know can I create a mess it seems like there's an opportunity ah you know I was far away but I noticed 
in that mine here, there was the possibility of creating, <laughs> you know, of multiplying the fear. You know? And so Mara shows up, and the Buddha says, Mara, with mindfulness, being aware of what's arising. Mara, I see you. And what happens in some of the texts, it's really cute. Mara is like, oh. you know, I've been caught again. You know, I thought I was like up to something, creating a lot of distress, you know. And the Buddha's like, Mara, I see you there. Don't. And Mara, like uh, the wits described, goes sit in a corner and sit, takes a little uh, branch, a stick of wood, you know, and start playing in the in the sand, you know. <laughs> I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and they voila, you know, this powerful emotion, you know, suddenly Mara, I see you, you're gonna create shit in here. <laughs> So doubt can come. That's one of the dense styles of the first 48 hours of the retreat, for sure. And the desire for something else. Like we easily fascinated. Ab, ab, uh, a, is there a word in English that starts with ab? <laughs> Abnubilated. Abnubile in French. <laughs> like really under the spell of desire. If I was back home... You know, and we can't see. We project on this thing that satisfaction on this thing. If I was at the end of the retreat, everything would be fine. Sorry to say, but no. If you were at the end of the retreat, you would still be you, <laughs> with all the mess in there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we want to wake up to this other kind of energy that is there, with the rejecting what is there as as if it was really creating all my misery, you know, or agitation, it's really hard to be, like the first few hours of the retreat, maybe yesterday some of you were describing this, Let's see if it's true, like we, we are kind of, um, we go from being having too much energy to having too little energy, so we're like sitting like this, oh, and then a few minutes after we're like, <laughs> you know. And so it takes a few days to actually refine the energy so that we don't have an energy problem anymore, too much or too little. And so it's very delicate. We pay attention as we walk, sit, eat, and at some point the energy aligns itself. The body, the system, understands what kind of energy it needs to sustain the practice. It takes a little time to find this out. Maybe I'll finish with this, thinking of Mara. So in his teaching, the Buddha talking about awareness of um, the senses, you know, hearing uh, lucidly, seeing consciously, feeling the sensation either in the hands, feet, or the stepping, the posture, you know, knowing that we're standing, knowing that we're sitting as it's happening. He uh, uses the image of a bottle. You might have heard this image before. So he says, when the bottle is empty, you can put anything in there. Mara can come in. But when the bottle is already full, you can't add something to it. And he uses this image to talk about sensory awareness. He says, when you're really present, 
to cold or wind or taste, when you're really dedicated, there's a generous attention, not just partly attentive, but fully attentive, giving generously full attention to the taste, instead of like half attention to the taste, half attention to next week, you know. When we're able to give full attention, it's as if the bottle is full. Mara cannot come in. When there's a fullness of presence to a stepping feet, then this is what's known. It takes all the space. And so we can use this in our research. Is that true? Not. What are the nuances, if any? But certainly, when it comes from a wise being like the Buddha, I pay attention. I'm like, oh, let me see, you know? And see where your mind takes off. You know, often the mind takes off when there's lack of attention. If I'm sitting here and it appears boring, there's not much happening, whoops, I'll get caught in past or future. You know, some I might get caught in fantasy of future. Oh, if this was to happen, you know. And then I'm in la-la land, you know. And I have to wake up again at some point. Oh, fantasy doesn't exist. It was a made-up castle. So, Rohitasa, the world, the creation of the world, the end of the world or suffering, the path to the end of suffering is right here. And we have a chance here to Take a look at that. Let's uh, just sit for a few moments in silence. Allowing what is there to just be known as it is. No story, no making fuss about anything. Just noticing the lightness, the heaviness, the discouragement, the calm, the tiredness, the joy, whatever is there. It's like this right now. Notice how the mind state that is present right now is creating a bit the world. In boredom, the world becomes boring. 
In quietness, the worlds become quiet. When caring, the world becomes uh, worthy of care. all have the chance to create an inner world that is uh, healthy and uh, safe to live in and beautiful. May we be able to create uh, a world that is also welcoming for others and safe for them to inhabit with us. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.